0: On today's show, we have Piers Ridyard, the CEO of RDX Works. We're going to discuss details about the project, funding, team and token, along with any plans on the roadmap. Radex is the only smart contract platform that started from the problem of how to decentralize the 400 trillion global economy and working backwards. Piers, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how did you get started? with RDX Works.
1: Sure. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Joe. So my background's been a bit like various different things. The last thing I did is I built a um, decentralized insurance application platform for large syndicated insurance deals, went through Y Combinator at the end of Y Combinator, was acquired by RDX Works and became CEO of RDX Works. Dan, the founder of Radix. The person who created Radix, the public ledger, was a great friend of mine in the crypto space. And we got closer and closer and it got to the point where I was like, man, this technology is so amazing. I want to get involved. But before that, yeah, like it, it, various things. I, I was mining on the Genesis block of Ethereum, sort of mining like Ethereum back when it was first got started. I worked a little bit in investment banking. I studied law. I did aerospace engineering, various stuff. And it all sort of came together with crypto. And that was really where I found my like my calling. And I was like, this place is amazing. And it's clearly going to be the future. So I want to be here. And that was about 2014, 2015. And I've been there ever since.
0: And so you've been here a while, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. So like when you kind of like got that first light bulb moment, I mean, what were the initial problems that maybe you've seen in the market as a whole that this would solve and maybe how is that maybe different from where we are today
1: yeah i think that Everything in crypto, from the first innovation was Bitcoin, and that was obviously this explosion of of ideals about how they wanted the world to be, how Satoshi Nakamoto wanted the world to be, and what he wanted to be fundamentally different. And it started with a bunch of principles. And then because of the sort of money that flowed into the space, what you saw was very fast innovation, but it was like very little. Like, So someone would copy the Bitcoin ledger and call it Dogecoin, but it's basically the Bitcoin source code, right? Or they would copy it and call it Namecoin or, or something like that. And so people started to create all these coins by creating entirely new ledgers. And then someone came along and went, well, what if we could just create new coins on a single ledger with a, with its own like virtual machine? And let's say that Ethereum was the next big innovation. That took quite a while, right? It went from sort of 2008 when Bitcoin first started, 2009, to 2014, 2015 for the first big innovation of blockchain. And then we had a bunch of small innovations on the back of that. It's like, okay, well, we want to make it a little bit faster, so we'll, we'll experiment with block size or experiment with the number of nodes that we have. And we've seen, you know, we've seen that go through its own cycle with things like EOS and stuff like that. And then you came with the new consensus algorithms, the things that fundamentally change things and open things up. And you, you've got stuff like, you know, Solana or Avalanche or you know, however flawed you might think they are, or whatever camp you might set on. Fundamentally, they are new innovations in in the space and what we've done over that entire time is we've been looking much more closely about well everyone's kind of working on this problem now but what is it that we're going towards let's stop a second and not concentrate on what the next problem is and let's think about in a wider context what is it that the space is actually aiming at right what do we think what do we believe deep down that this technology is going to be capable of and we think that public ledgers are going to be in the same vein as the internet they're going to be a public service on which the entire wealth of the world is going to be represented tracked and contracted around and that that means that it's 400 trillion dollars right which is roughly what the total wealth uh, you know in assets of the world is that that which is already tracked right so if you go with the 400 trillion dollar view And you go, well, what is suitable today to be able to be the equivalent of the internet for $400 trillion in which the entire world can base that on? You go, nothing comes close. Nothing's like, nothing's anywhere near scalable enough, right? Like if you look at what the global financial system today is doing, it's like two to 20 million transactions per second. Between two and 20 million transactions per second is what global finance is doing today. And then you look at something like Solana and you go, well, 65,000 transactions per second. Or you look at something like Avalanche, which is 4,500. And you're like, that's, it's not even in the same ball game. It's not, it's not forget ballparks. It's a frigging, it's, 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 it's like, it doesn't even come close. And that's not, that's not the whole picture. That's not like where you get the full sense of what I think of as vertigo, where you start to see the big picture, right? It's like at the start of the internet, If we went round and we went, what do we think the total bandwidth need of the internet is going to be? And people went, well, there's about this many phone calls that are made every day and about this many faxes that are sent every day. So we think the bandwidth need of the internet is probably about that. And now we look at that in hindsight, we go, oh, that's freaking ridiculous. But we're doing the same thing in crypto. We're doing the same thing. We're going, well, if we can reach Visa, it's like, no, you're not thinking at the right level. Like if we make everything smart contracts and we make everything a composable whole, where every single interaction between smart contracts triggers something else or is like part of another smart contract call, then 20 million transactions per second in the global financial system of today is probably 10, 100x that at least in you know, the global financial system of tomorrow, if it's based on top of public ledgers. So we started from that problem. We went, okay, how do you create a consensus algorithm that can scale to that kind of level? And that's where Cerberus came about. Then we let, looked at the next problem and we went, what's the other problem that is with, with crypto? Well, the hacks and the exploits are insane. Like We've had $3 billion worth of hacks in the last six months. Like. How is that sustainable? How how can anyone with a straight face go? This is the place that global finance is going to be, but in the last six months, about ten percent of the total value—no, you know, about you know—sorry, less than that. It's about about five percent, two percent of the total value of the crypto space has been has been hacked. So the next thing is going well. Why is security so bad? And security comes down to this whole thing of like Ethereum was an experiment in what you could do with smart contracts. But it didn't know what the purpose of smart contracts were. We now know they're financial transactions. We now know that they're financial applications. So let's start with a programming language and an execution environment that's actually built for financial transactions and financial applications. That's actually got security built around the primitives that are what finance technology is needed for. And let's solve that problem because only when you have that are you going to be able to actually realistically with a straight face say this is somewhere that global finance can live by actually removing all of the horrible ways in which the language causes people to get hacked and exploited in, with Solidity, with the EVM and with all the ways that people program smart contracts today? And then the last thing that we look at as, as a structural inequity of the, of the current crypto market is there is only 18,500 Web3 developers. Only 18,500 Web3 developers after 7 years of one of the most well-funded areas of technology, full stop, we've managed to get 18 Why? Because if you go and talk to them, we've spoken to almost a thousand DeFi developers and projects in the last three years. If you go and talk to them, their job is really hard and it's really stressful and it's really boring. What they do, it tends to all be about an 80, percent is on security. And the learning curve to get up there is like 18 months to two years. And the dropout rate of the number of people who start trying to code solidity or start trying to code smart contracts versus actually become smart contract developers is like 85, 90%. And so we only get this tiny, tiny bit. Like it's like, if you think about a normal business and you think about your funnel Like the developers that are coming in, great start of the funnel. People are like, wow, web three is so exciting. And then they all drop out in the middle because getting to the end is basically impossible. So what we've done is we've created an incredible funnel. We've created a programming language called scripto that is incredibly easy to use and incredibly easy for people to get started with to lower the barrier to entry and make it simple to get started with web three. Because it's only then that the innovation that is necessary to come into the space to be able to build what $400 trillion of of financial instruments on top of a public ledger is going to look like you need the talent and so that's why radix is different
0: got it and so when it comes to you know global adoption or global finance right what is your vision how do you actually see this play out do you see more of DeFi or certain things participating more on the open blockchains or do you you know and maybe goldman is spinning up their own blockchain to use within certain guidelines and regulations like Outside looking in, like I see certain projects, you know, they get certain size or something may occur and then they spin up their own blockchain. From a regulatory standpoint, you know, where do you think we go with this? Do you think there's just many, many blockchains that serve different niches? Do you think that bigger players like Goldman or Bank of America or something are going to have their own infrastructure? How do you think this plays out?
1: My answer on that is a strong no, but it wasn't always, right? We go back to sort of the case study of the internet. Why is the internet powerful? The internet's powerful because is a single global standard. It's actually not a single as a, anyone who's technical gonna be like actually there's many standards in the internet. It's like, yes, yes, fine. But it is a set of standards that the that that everyone adopts to be able to build in the same way on top of what is considered the the internet today, right? And that standardization generally trumps The concept of like a segregated set of of functionality. Now, intranets are certainly a thing. And you know, there was a time that Bill Gates thought that intranets were going to be the future, not the internet. And there was a bunch of like really interesting articles that were written about why you could build better intranets for specific purposes than a global internet. And the same thing happened with government levels. Governments came in and they went, we want our own internet. So France built Telnet, which was the French internet and it wasn't connected to the rest of the internet. It was the French internet because they they wanted the French internet. And so you're seeing the same patterns now. You're seeing the JP Morgans, the Goldman Sachs, you saw the first wave of that with things like R3. You now see the next wave of that with things like Quorum from JP Morgan and yeah. whatever Goldman Sachs is doing. Right. And then you're also seeing sort of like regulatory specific chains, like, you know, Polymath would be an example of that. Ultimately, Everything that you need to do with the exception at the moment of privacy, and that's an interesting one that I think is going to is going to be, there's gonna be a long debate on that. But everything with the exception of privacy, you can do on a public ledger because all you're doing is programming rules around the, and so the interactions between addresses and tokens, right? So if you want a token that can only be held by 20 people, you can program a token that can only be held by tokens. It's not a hard token to create. You don't have to create your own ledger that does that. If you want to create a token that has to follow a set of rules around the transfer so that you have to have a bunch of like off-ledger processes enabled, again, that is a smart contract that you can build that governs the movement of a token and make sure the token only gets transferred in the proper way. So no, you don't have to build a new blockchain to be able to do regulatory compliant stuff. You can be regulatory compliant on top of public ledger. And you're already seeing things like Aave Pro and other regulatory compliant DeFi applications coming out. So the benefit of a public ledger, a lot of people talk about, why build on a public ledger? Why not just build it on a database, right? And it comes down to this concept of composability. It comes down to this idea of a shared platform, right? So if I want to build an application on top of Ethereum, Right When I do, I'm sharing the user base of Ethereum. I'm sharing the assets that are already on top of Ethereum as potential assets for my application. I'm sharing the liquidity. I'm sharing the community. I'm sharing the developer base. And so now I can modularize a lot more because if you look at things like Aave, what does Aave rely on? Aave relies on there being a a liquid secondary market for the tokens that are on Aave. It doesn't do the liquidations. The liquidations happen as a result of things like Uniswap existing and things like SushiSwap existing. And so it's only by this universe of interconnected finance applications do you get an ecosystem that emerges. And if, as soon as you put barriers to entry, as soon as you say, you have to ask permission to come and build on my ledger, you go back to the point where you've created so much activation energy that your long tail of entrepreneurs and and opportunities that are gonna build a build just disappear. You go back to essentially what we have now. If I wanted to build an application against the New York Stock Exchange, man, that's a really difficult process. If I wanted to build an application against Uniswap, I can do it now today without asking anyone's permission. The difference between those two things in terms of innovation and how quickly those ecosystems are going to move is the sum total of who's going to win, in my opinion, and why I do not believe that private ledgers are the future in any sense.
0: That was a good answer. <laughs> That's good. So why don't you break down Radix and tell us what is the difference between a distributed ledger technology and a blockchain? You know, a lot of these words are thrown around out there. Maybe I'm sure a lot of investors that come into the space are not as technical as most of you guys. So can you kind of break that down for them? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean,
1: you can think of a distributed ledger or decentralized ledger technology, DLT, is the category term, right? So like fish. And then blockchain is salmon. So all salmon are fish, but not all fish are salmon, right? Yeah. So blockchain describes a data architecture to do with how, how the data is stored on ledger. So you have a block of transactions that are all validated together. They get written to the ledger as one block and then that block then creates the basis for the next block so that you always have to strictly increase the number of blocks in an increment of one and that you have a chain of events that you can go back through and look at. now. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have that data architecture to be able to build a DLT, a decentralized ledger technology, and that's not what Radix has done. Like going back to this whole thing of going, well, if you're going to be doing the global financial system and you're going to be doing 200 million transactions per second, like how do you build a data architecture around that? One of the big problems of blockchain is it is essentially a single threaded process. Right, I do this block and then I do the next block. And then I do the next block. And even when you have sharding, like in the way that Ethereum does it, right, ETH2, you still have the beacon chain, which is a single process chain of blocks. And you have other blocks that are associated with those blocks, other blockchains that are associated with those blocks. But ultimately, you still have a, a crunch point. You have your maximum throughput that is limited by the speed and the amount of data that can be in each of the deep beacon chain blocks, which gives you your upper limit. It just gives you your upper limit on the transaction throughput. And it's only around, you know, 20 000 to 200,000 transactions per second. And people are like, wow, that's amazing. It's like, yes, it is compared to what we have now but it's nothing compared to what we need. And you're saying that's like the end state, like what, how does that get us to global finance and, you know, 200 million transactions per second? So what Radix does is it it is essentially, it's a DLT rather than the blockchain. And it has a massively sharded architecture that each of the transactions are written according to And this gets a little bit technical, but if you have a wallet, your wallet lives on a shard and all of the data associated with that wallet also lives on that shard. And so you can have parallel processing. And the reason you can have parallel processing is if I have my wallet on my shard or my I have my wallet and you have your wallet and you send a transaction to your mother and I send a transaction to my mother, right? On a blockchain, as it currently stands, The blockchain has to decide which of those transactions were literally first and which ones of them were second. They will literally order both of those. They will go, Joe's was first and Piers' was second. On Radix, it will go, well, they're not conflicting, so we don't care. We just care that they're valid. We don't care what order they're in. And so you go from single chain processing, like a CPU with a single thread, to multi-chain processing, like a GPU, where you have a way of making sure that the things that would conflict always happen on the same shards. The things that don't conflict don't, and then you can process them in parallel. And suddenly you open up just millions more transactions per second possibility just by starting with the data architecture and that's why radix isn't a blockchain it doesn't have this single you know chain process it's a multi-thread process that allows you to get massive throughput basically from the start
0: so now if someone's sitting here and saying okay you have the multi-thread or the single what is the best use case for either one and why would one choose to go in either direction
1: that's an interesting question It's, it's not it's not actually the the hard point the hard point actually comes a slightly higher up the stack what you want is when you do defi you want to be able to compose together multiple applications right so now it's a bit into the finance weeds but like why is uniswap's volume so high and why is its price always basically the same as what it is on binance right like with the usdc ether price on uniswap and the usdc ether price on binance how do they stay in such close lockstep and the reason is is because you can do a bunch of transactions inside a single block so i can say okay i want to borrow from ave swap on sushi swap swap something else on Uniswap, and then pay back my loan on Aave, and I want it to happen inside a single block, right? And if any one of those bits of the chain fail, the whole thing fails. Now, from the point of view of the number of people who do that, very small, but from the point of view of the importance to the ecosystem, it means that price arbitrage in a block is possible, and so you can always keep everything aligned with all of the other markets, right? Now, that If you want to go to multi-chain and multi-thread, you have to have a way of allowing atomic composability. You have to have a way of making sure that even if you can have things happening asynchronously, if you need to synchronize multiple addresses together or multiple transactions together, there has to be way in a way that that can happen. And that was impossible until our consensus algorithm Cerberus came out. So Cerberus is a new consensus algorithm that allows you to do multi thread asynchronous and synchronous processing on top of a public ledger so that you can go okay well the, all of these are connected so we'll operate consensus together on these these are separate so we'll operate separate consensus instances on that so you can still have multi-threading but you can make sure that you're able to coordinate between shards and that breakthrough was the thing that stopped people doing multi-threading because as soon as you do multi-threading you break atomic composability unless your consensus algorithm deals with it which is what Radix does
0: Interesting. So can you break down exactly, you mentioned Cerberus, right? What exactly that does in more detail?
1: Yeah, I mean, like it will get start getting much more technical in the next level. But Cerberus is a multi, what's called a multi-phase commit consensus algorithm, it understands that everything is cross-shard. So you start with two to the power 256 shards, which is a very, very large number, right? And then if you have two to the power 256 shards and every single address or account that you create essentially sits on one of those shards, everything is essentially going to be a cross-shard transaction. So most ledgers today that do sharding try and go down the route of going, we want enough shards to be able to get enough throughput, but not so many shards that we create a bunch of overhead because the way that the transactions across shards work on things like Ethereum is a lot more expensive than a transaction on the same shard. However, with Radix, the consensus algorithm sits across all of the shards. And so the consensus algorithm, you have a bunch of validator nodes and these nodes sit at various points across the sharded architecture. And if I have a transaction that is occurring across, let's say simple ones, I send transaction to you. So it's across two shards because there's only a two to the power 256 chance that our wallet's on the same address. So they're not going to be, so it's gonna be across two shards then just the validators that are concerned with those two shards are required to come to consensus in synchrony together. However, if a transaction also touches the same validator set from a different point, each of those consensus operations are happening as separate operations, as parallel operations. So a node isn't just running things in synchrony. It will go, okay, I'm running this set together with this set, running this set together with this set. These two sets operate Independently, because they are not, not concerned with the same transactions, and I will just complete them as I can. So I could have thousands of simultaneous consensus operations I'm operating on across many, many shards, but I am able to stitch together all of the nodes that I need to happen in 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 synchrony. The commit as to whether or not it was final across all of those shards. And the reason that's important is because. Atomic composability means that it's either all final or it all fails. So if you're doing like a 56 step transaction across multiple applications, but on one of them, the pricing isn't good enough and it and it fails your bounds, you want it to fail. And by doing consensus in this way, where it either all commits or it all fails, you don't end up in a situation where you have to unravel like where you got up to. Basically everything commits or nothing commits for that operation across those shards.
0: So I'm just sitting here, you know, being uh, in the space the last five years, right? And also thinking from a listener investor standpoint, we definitely have uh, the TPS ICO boom of the 17-18s, right? Right. We have Solana out now, obviously was a heavy uh, hitter in the last year or so. How should investors or users look at and get a better understanding of what is the true reality of what maybe the future looks like with a lot of these different blockchains because a lot of people claim these certain tps's the scalability composability is there anything that's maybe outside of the normal conversation that people can use as as tools or something when they're looking at these different projects yeah
1: so there's two things and the first is i think is a bit of a dirty secret of the crypto space at the moment and a certain dishonesty around that I can talk about. And then the second is what I actually think matters more than TPS numbers. I think that the crypto space talks about TPS numbers a lot. And you could, there, there are corollaries to that in the computing space as well. Computing always used to be about like gigahertz on your processor and like the number of cores and stuff like that. And that's sort of gone away, not completely, but like a lot of it is now, what's the end user experience end up being? Like And there was a bunch of stuff when, you know, early days of Intel versus AMD, where they used to like tweak their chips for benchmarking. But then when people actually used them and they benchmarked it against real use cases, they came out as utter dirt. And that's the dirty secret of crypto today.
0: Is that like the miles per gallon in the vehicle? But when you drive, you're like flooring it around and it's like 5, 10 miles per gallon less. And they're like, what'd they do? Put it on like the slowest speed? (laughs) Right.
1: Exactly. They got like a grandma to drive it around at five miles an hour. Yeah. So like, what happens in crypto today is that people still report t- transaction per second numbers. And I think that's dishonest because it doesn't reflect usage, right? What people are using public ledgers for isn't transactions per second. And I, and I appreciate that I've been talking about transactions per second previously because that's just what everyone understands. But I'm glad we're getting onto this next topic, right? What actually matters is smart contract operations. And that's not actually a transaction, Right? If I'm doing a DEX swap, if I'm swapping one token for another on Uniswap, then the number of swaps per second I can do is a radically different number from the number of transactions, as in a simple, I send you some money. However, the majority of transactions that are happening on public ledgers are not, I send you some money. It's, I send a smart contract some money and I want it to do something, or I do a call against a smart contract and I want it to do something. So if we look at those benchmarks, you start to see some really different numbers, right? So Polygon, headline transactions per second, 10,000 transactions per second. But if you look at a DEX on Polygon and look at the maximum number of DEX swaps per second you can do, it's 48. 48 deck swaps per second, right? If you look at Avalanche, 4,500 transactions per second, but if you look at how many deck swaps per second it can do sustained, it's 32. And if you look at Solana, 65,000 transactions per second, number of deck swaps per second is 278. So like if people are going, I think DeFi is the future, I think Web3 is the future, I think that everything is going to be assets that are represented by tokens and they're going to be interacting with smart contracts start looking at what the benchmarks that matter and they, these are public you know uh, electric capital did a report on this and did benchmarking and it, it it's good work And the reason that we say that Radix is a a platform built specifically for decentralized finance is that everything about how our execution environment works and how our smart contract language works is optimized towards these kinds of functions. So like a deck swap on Radix, like when you're seeing something that is coming at less than 0.5% of headline performance for things like Solana, you're starting to see 80% of headline performance with Radix, right? And that's sort of just coming from our early benchmarking of what we expect to happen when the mainnet hits, which is going to be in Q1 next next year for our, our smart contract platform going live on, on, on the Radix le- uh, ledger. So I think that's really interesting. Is If you as an investor think scalability matters, start looking at benchmarks to reflect what you now know are the real use cases for these ledgers. Don't go, what's what's your headline? Because people aren't sending tokens to each other. They are interacting with smart contracts. So what's the smart contract? That's... The one sort of like left of field thing I'd say have a look at, right? And the other thing I'd say is, and I was talking about this before, is that what really matters right now in the space is getting more developers in, right? Like where's the innovation coming from? Where's where's the next generation of applications going to come from? Where's the Google or the Facebook of public ledgers going to come from? It's going to come from smart people having great tools to be able to build what they have in their mind and be able to put that down into code. And right now we have a structural problem with doing that, right? Solidity sucks. The EVM sucks and it sucks so badly, but we kind of just like give it a pass because it's given us so much value to date, right? Because it was a good experiment, as a starting point before people really understood what was necessary for it. And so, like, if we want to know where the innovation is going to come from, where the next wave of sophistication, the next wave of technology is going to come from, it's going to come from places where there are tools that make it easier for developers to go from idea to production-grade code. And again, that's what Radix is is working very carefully on with things like. Scripto, which is our programming language. And you can't just copy and paste it. You can't just go, okay, cool. That's a really good idea. We'll just put that on the EVM. Because the EVM isn't designed for DeFi. It isn't designed for DeFi execution. It isn't designed around the security of decentralized finance. So like, that's why you need its own execution environment. You go, okay, cool. Well, we'll take the programming language and execution environment. We'll put it on an existing ledger. And it's like, no, the consensus algorithm has to be built around the concept of atomic composability so that you don't lose, as you scale, composability when you're scaling decentralized finance. So no, you actually have to build the whole thing. You have to build the consensus layer, the execution layer and the programming language to be able to actually solve the problems that we already can see are structural problems with crypto today.
0: And here's another one to go off that is, obviously there's so many different options out there for developers to come on to, investors to invest in. I mean, how does one get strategic partnerships of part of this global finance onto that, what they're doing, you know, how do they get that adoption? And that seems like the, obviously the probably the biggest challenge here. So how do you guys create those partnerships and how do you onboard and tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. And like, again, the answer, the answer is a, is a different answer to what you normally hear, right? The, a lot of crypto <laughs> space is like, well, you go out and you pay people, right? You go out and you pay people and you buy your partnerships and then you can come out with a big name and say, this is, this is it. But if you've actually looked at every single successful ecosystem that's gone live the big ecosystem successes are not the ones that were successful on other ecosystems so like uniswap is not the biggest decentralized exchange on avalanche it's pangolin and trader joe's right like uniswap is not the big biggest decentralized exchange on solana it's serum so like the innovation comes from within it comes from within your community And so the most important thing is facilitation of your community, specifically your community of developers, and making sure that they have the tools to be successful inside your ecosystem. So it's not go out and buy, it's create the fertile ground for people to be able to innovate successfully within your ecosystem. And that comes down to the harder long-term things. You have to build a great community. You have to build great support within that community. You have to build great documentation. You have to build great example codes. You have to do competitions that give people opportunities to show off and to learn and also to earn. You have to do things that do not make the place feel like a bunch of mercenaries, which is almost every single place in crypto. And actually feel like a bunch of places that people can come and hang out and learn. The reason that's important is going back to this whole 18 and a half thousand developers versus 27 million developers. and The majority of people who are going to be coding in DeFi today were not coding in DeFi yesterday. What they need is a place to learn, not a place to compete, not a place to suddenly go, I'm going to come in and build a billion dollar application, because that's not how people think. I know that people think that's how people think, but A developer today who's working in a fintech company, bored off their head because what they're doing is boring and every day, and looking at Web3 isn't going, I'm going to quit my job and do a Web3. He starts with going, I need to understand what Web3 is. Like, how do I learn what Web3 is? And that is what we're doing so successfully with Scripto. Like We launched our programming language in December of last year, and we already had 2,600 developers come into our community and try Scripto and start building with that. And you look at the numbers of the overall developers in Web3, that's an astounding number of people very quickly. And that's because we aren't going after, we're not chasing after what everyone else is, what Near is, what Avalanche is, what Solana is, with these big amounts of money, they're going after the 18,500, we're going, fuck them, they're happy. Let let's go after the half a million who have tried and failed solidity because it's awful. Let's go after the 10 million who are working in technology stacks that would make them perfect to go into sort of DeFi development and Web3 development. And that's how you build a community. You start from the grassroots, you start from building the place that people want to come and learn, right? like. There's a great saying in the last generation of technology, I think it was like, maybe it was two generations ago, not in crypto, but in like web two, which was uh, come for the tech and stay for the community. That's what you have to build because that's where the innovation will come from. Did the Googles of yesterday come from the newspaper world? Heck no. So like, it's not about that. It's about how do you create a fertile ground for the people who think in a native Web3 way to have the sufficient tools and opportunity to build the Googles of tomorrow. It's not going to come from Goldman Sachs. It's not going to come from JP Morgan.
0: What does R- Radix offer in regards to the developers? Do you guys have grants or partnerships? Like what is offered to kind of bring them to onboard them and retain them as talent?
1: Yeah, so it starts as we're still before we've integrated the programming language into the into the public ledger which happens next year it's still around small competitions, small like developer events. So we've now run, I think we've we've now done over a thousand developers in our developer events. So like sort of physical events where we'll go and teach people or like online webinars. A lot of it is education giving. So giving away how to do things, how to think in the right way, getting people on courses, getting people to, to learn together. So one of our community members took the initiative to start his own like learning course so that people could start like building with it. You're seeing sort of like meetups and things like that. That's where it starts. Then as we get closer to the uh, mainnet going live, you're going to start seeing more things like developer grants come in. But again, making sure that it's the right thing that you're giving grants for. I think there's a lot of money that's been thrown uselessly in the crypto space and there's a lot of ways in which it can be used much more strategically. So we'll we'll be releasing more details of that. But yeah, ultimately, we think that Focusing on how you identify those who are already being successful in your community and accelerating and amplifying them, rather than trying to fill the funnel by paying people to come in, that clearly doesn't work because it's not the way that most
0: people are motivated. So, besides mainnet, is there any other uh, aspects you'd like to cover on the roadmap for the next twelve to twenty-four months?
1: No. So, we've already got our Olympias already live. So, our consensus, our like first version of the consensus algorithm, is already live which has been like running for a year. And we have, I don't know, maybe half a billion dollars worth of staked value on the network, which is securing the network today. And that's been running without any problems. uh, So no liveness breaks or stops or anything like that. Now that then when the smart contract language gets integrated is basically integrated into an existing decentralized ledger that already has security that has already been set up with no runners and all that kind of stuff. So that's pretty big. That's a pretty big thing for us to do in the next like 12 months so that that is
0: the only thing and last let's leave off with the radix token right kind of what is the purpose of serves within the ecosystem
1: yeah so the radix token is you can think of it very much like an ethereum token or a solana token or avalanche token it is the is the main token of the network it lets you stake to secure the network for which you know people who actively stake and secure the network receive staking income you can use it to transact value if you want to you can use it to pay for for fees there's a couple of things that I think are really interesting about the fee model the fee model is similar to Eip 1559 those who are familiar with the ethereum one where you have you know you have tips and then part of it is burnt but we also have this concept of delegated fees within the ecosystem so you can have an application that can pay for fees on behalf of a user so you can end up in situations where essentially even if you don't have rads radix tokens you can still use the network if the application that you're interacting with wants to pay your fees on your behalf we think that's going to be massively important for driving sort of mainstream adoption because we don't think it's sustainable forcing end users to have to have like these extra tokens in addition to the thing that they actually want to do with the ledger and so i think there's lots of cases that's going to be powerful and helpful for the next wave of adoption
0: so applications will pay or advance that for the users i guess right Exactly. So, like, because
1: everything's atomic on Radix, yep. you can say, Oh, I want to do this action. As part of the action, the application can go, Well, if that action is happening, like, we're getting a million dollars of USDC of liquidity. Yeah, we'll pay your like 50 cent, 20 cent, 10 cent, 5 cent, whatever it is, fee to use the network. As part of that operation but the applications can make it conditional on what the person is doing so you can make it so that it's very difficult to spam all this kind of stuff but we think it's uh, critical for making it less intellectually challenging to use a decentralized finance application
0: what do you see as maybe some of the key points that investors can look at when it comes to how a lot of the tokens will accrue value throughout these different projects over the next let's say decade or 10 years
1: yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. Obviously, like the function of the Radix token is not speculative. It is a utility token of the public ledger. So I can't really speak to the Radix token itself, but from the point of view of what has been happening within the decentralized finance application space, I think it really depends on what the dynamics of the of the token is and what the is really it's really difficult to tell. Like every time you have a public ledger, you have a different community that has a different set of like priorities and you also see a shift in like, what last DeFi summer was governance tokens, right? Governance being the key thing that was going to accrue value because you had a say in how the application functioned. We haven't really seen that come about that much, but then there's also signs that it might be coming in the next wave. So it's really difficult. I think crypto is still a really difficult asset class to value fundamentally. You're betting in the same way as we used to speculate on web two businesses. It was like, if you build an audience, then you will find a way of monetizing that audience. It was the Facebook model or the Twitter model. And it, it turned out to be true, right? Like Facebook and Twitter are both, well, Twitter less so, but Facebook does very well for itself on revenue. So does Google, right? And I think that that's still true today. If, if an application is accruing value Right? If it's accruing value lock and providing real utility that is providing yield and returns in a way that appeals to the financial markets, you're probably onto a winner, even if even if we're not sure how it's necessarily going to monetize or return value to the token holders. I don't think the battle is yet about that. I think the battle is about how do you find ways in which you can get attract capital and that's what I look at most when I'm thinking about what's interesting in the space.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And let's leave off there. You know, for all the listeners, I would like to get a hold of you, learn more about Radix. Where should they go? What should they do?
1: You can find out more about the decentralized finance protocol Radix on the website, radixdlt.com. You can follow on twitter at radix dlt that's r-a-d-i-x d-l-t uh you can follow me on twitter i'm at piers ridyard that's r-i-d-y-a-r-d p-i-e-r-s r-i-d-y-a-r-d and honestly if you're a developer then you can do much worse than just having a play around with script because i think it is the number one way of learning what web3 is uh, if you're a developer
0: thank you for coming on
1: been great thank you